It's Friday, November the 18th. In this episode of Going Viral, I will be speaking to Professor Michael Toole, who will be commenting on the current wave and the bivalent vaccine. Michael will also discuss the risks GPs face and if a fifth dose is required. The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Professor Toole, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm a medical graduate from 1971. Uh, for, after my internship, I spent about 25 years overseas, um, first in Thailand, then in Somalia, and then I worked for the US um, Centers for Disease Control. Uh, where I was responsible for coordinating the agency's response to health emergencies related to conflict. And in the early 1990s, when I was um, at the CDC, of course, there were many, many conflicts from Bosnia, Somalia, Rwanda, etc. I came back to Australia in 1996 and spent much of my time working on HIV-related issues in the region, in particular in Laos, Tibet, Papua New Guinea, and Indonesia. In the last 10 years of my career at Burnett, I was more involved with polio. I was a member of the Independent Monitoring Board of the Polio Eradication Initiative, which took me to a number of countries where there was still polio. In particular, Afghanistan, I went three times, but also to Chad and also to Israel um, in 2013 when there was uh, a so-called silent outbreak of polio. Also done a lot of work in nutrition. I was involved in pandemic preparedness for the Australian government, not for Australia, but for the region, Southeast Asia and the Pacific I was going to retire in 2020, but of course, COVID arrived, and I stayed on another two years and retired um, about this time last year. Well, Michael, you're sitting across what's happened with COVID, so maybe I'll start with the current wave. Can you give us an update on the current COVID wave? I think over the last two weeks, there's been a substantial increase in reported cases. Now, we know that there is considerable underreporting. It's no longer necessary to report a positive rapid antigen test. Also, the requirement to isolate four or five days is no longer present. So for people who are on casual contracts, perhaps don't have any sick leave, there is a disincentive to get tested and and report that. Nonetheless, um, the biggest increase in reported cases was um, the week ending the 11th of November, mm-hmm. when there was around about a 50% increase across the country. In terms of hospitalizations, um, there was an increase in all states and territories except the Northern Territory. The largest proportional increase was in Queensland, 
mm-hmm. where there was a doubling of hospitalizations mm-hmm. um, from the week before. But there were also significant increases in New South Wales mm-hmm. and Victoria. Overall, nationally, there was an increase from around 1,400 hospitalizations the week before to 1,800 um, last week. And I would expect that tomorrow we will see further increases in both cases and hospitalizations. As you know, deaths lag behind cases by two, three, four weeks. So we haven't yet seen an increase in deaths. And hopefully we won't. But I think some of the comparisons made with Singapore are rather weak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are two big differences between Singapore. Well, there's three big differences uh, between Singapore and Australia. First of all, Singapore takes COVID very seriously, and that's not the case anymore in Australia. Um, secondly, their third dose booster rate is much higher mm-hmm. than Australia. In Australia, there are about five and a half million adults who have not received a third dose. And it's likely that they received their second dose 10 to 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. So from what we know of studies, uh, they are no longer protected against um, these new subvariants of Omicron. We've also noted from Queensland that this particular wave has been disproportionately affecting older people. So in previous waves, Most cases were in young people between the age of, say, 20 and even younger. Um, The latest survey shows that um, 80% of children under the age of five have been infected with COVID. That goes down to about 65% for adults. And it's possible that even older adults that have received their fourth dose have waning immunity. They mostly would have got their fourth dose between April and June this year. And we know from a number of studies that five to six months after that dose, there is considerable decline in immunity. Now, personally, I was concerned about that because I'm 75 years old. Mm -hmm. So on a recent trip to Egypt, I got my fifth dose in Cairo. That has made me feel safer. Just shifting to social media for a moment. When I was transiting uh, in Doha Airport on the way back from Cairo to Melbourne, I posted a photo of me wearing um, a mask in the departure lounge. And I went around and counted only five others in probably there were 300 people in the departure lounge. Now, that post attracted an enormous amount of abuse. Oh. Um, abuse that I haven't experienced since 2020, when wow. I did I did receive a lot of abuse for supporting the measures that Victoria took in that first year of the pandemic before we had vaccines. Wow. So I was rather shocked by the abuse that was directed at me for wearing a mask in a public place where I was stuck with 300 people in close proximity for almost an hour. So there are still a lot of people. To be fair, I got a lot of likes, more than a 1,000 likes. But the actual comments were overwhelmingly negative. And I think this reflects not just attitudes in Australia, but globally. On the positive note, 
I took a side trip from Cairo to Vienna. And in Vienna, on all forms of public transport, P2 or an N95 mask is mandatory. Mm -hmm. And I did not see any. Well, I saw a couple of young people who were not wearing masks, but the overwhelming majority of people were wearing masks. So, you know, I, I think we have a problem in this country that hardly anyone is wearing masks. And as I said, we have this large five to six million people who have minimal protection from the vaccine. I, I'm quite shocked by your, if you like, the photo attracting such negative comments. Um, and, and at the moment, so many people are actually just saying, oh, I just had COVID as if I've just had the cold or the flu. Uh, not that it meant very much to them. But Michael, I just want to ask you about the recently published veterans study that reveals a lot about the risks and impacts of multiple infections. What can you tell us about this study and anything else that has actually emerged from the study? Well, it was a very large study of US veterans in the hundreds of thousands. I think importantly, it had a control group of veterans that had not had COVID. Mm -hmm. um, now, this was published as a preprint. It may even be six months ago. Mm -hmm. It attracted a lot of attention, some criticism, because people claimed that US veterans tended not to be representative of the US population. They smoked more. They had more pre-existing conditions. Um, they were largely male. However, that paper underwent a very thorough peer review and has now been published mm -hmm. in, in a renowned journal. Now, what that study found was that the more reinfections you had, the higher the risk you had of complications, mm -hmm. both immediately following that infection, mm -hmm. and these were largely cardiovascular or cerebrovascular incidents, so strokes and heart attacks. Over time, the risk of long COVID, that's 200 or more symptoms, uh, was higher. So it was higher in people that had two infections than one, and higher again in people who had three infections compared with two. There were a small number that had four infections, and that was not statistically able to be analysed. But certainly at three, you had at least double the risk of post-COVID symptoms and conditions, some of which were fatal. So those that had two infections or three infections had twice the mortality rate of those that had only one infection. And slowly, gradually, we're starting to understand uh, what causes these post-COVID conditions. It seems increasingly likely that this is due to the immune system going into overdrive. So it is attacking our own tissues. There's also evidence that there's people with long COVID have a much lower level of cortisol. And as we know, cortisol is a natural anti-inflammatory. Now, why this happens, we don't know. It seems like it's not persistence of the virus itself, mm -hmm. but it may be that particles of the virus persist and induce this this over um, active immune response. 
um, which um, becomes almost like an autoimmune disorder. We're not doing much research in Australia on long COVID. In fact, we don't have a national database mm-hmm. of long COVID. So we really have no idea. We badly need a national database so we know what we're heading for. Mm. I've just helped write a Burnett Institute submission to the parliamentary inquiry into long COVID. And based on there's two Australian studies and many studies in other countries like the UK, the biggest study is in the US, um, we could have anywhere between 300,000 to a million Australians that have had or will have or currently have long COVID. The health system is not set up for um, managing long COVID. I think as GPs, your audience would be aware of the need to exclude other causes of these many, many symptoms of long COVID. And you can't do that in a 15-minute consultation. We recommended in the submission that there be a special Medicare item for the diagnosis of long COVID, and that that should be at least an hour. That's currently the recommendations in the US that you need one hour to consult a possible case of long COVID. Of course, then you have to send them off for scans and other tests to exclude other causes of those symptoms. So we're really not set up. We've got a couple of state-run long COVID clinics in the capital cities. I believe the clinic at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney has a 12-month waiting list. The waiting list at the Royal Melbourne Hospital is almost as long. So we're really not set up to manage this potential uh, mass disability event. That that is a shocking number, 300,000 to a million uh, with long COVID in Australia. And you've just told me that more than 5 million Australians have really not had their boosters or are now pretty much not immune to this current uh, wave, if you like. So these numbers are really going to start rocketing, aren't they? Well, I've learned never to predict what this virus is going to do. (laughs) Hopefully, we will experience a short wave like Singapore. Mm -hmm. But as I explained, there are two big differences between the two countries, and that is the level of mask wearing, which is high in Singapore, and the booster rate, which is higher in Singapore than it is in Australia. So we have a lot of people who are vulnerable to infection, and increasingly vulnerable to severe infection. Hospitalizations did go up in Singapore, but they came down fairly quickly. So, you know, I think just looking at Singapore as somewhat short-sighted. Italy had a wave a couple of months ago where their number of COVID patients in hospital was an all-time record, and the same in Germany. Slightly different subvariants, but still... People were not protected against severe infections. Uh, We have not seen a big increase in global deaths from COVID or Omicron, but the burden on hospitals is is not to be um, underestimated. And as I said, the number of people in hospital in Queensland doubled last week. 
Michael, you mentioned something very important uh, before your trip to Egypt, which was that you sought a fifth uh, booster, a fifth shot. Uh, the question we have is, look, it's not going to get any better really out there uh, because, as you mentioned, we have particular risks uh, like not masking and not having high booster rates, and that's not going to change quickly anytime soon. Should GPs think about having a fifth shot ourselves or ask our older patients to think about it, even though Atanji has not yet recommended it? Yes, I don't want to publicly um, disagree with Atagi. They have looked at the effectiveness of fifth doses in a number of countries, and I haven't seen the data that they um, perused, but they have decided against a fifth dose. Now, I just took the personal choice at my age to get a fifth dose. Of course, not everyone can go overseas. Now, the friends I stayed with in Vienna had had both had six doses. Wow. So in Austria, you can keep getting boosters as long as the previous dose was six months ago. Okay. Interesting. So they're up to six, and now I'm up to five. I would think it would be in the interests of older patients to get a fifth dose. Having said that, uh, tell us what you think about the newly approved bivalent vaccine, first of all, for Australians, and then secondly, for the particular patients you speak of, the older ones and the ones at higher risk. Well, I think there's good evidence that both the Moderna and the Pfizer bivalent vaccines are more effective at preventing particularly severe infection by Omicron. Atagi has just approved the Pfizer. That's the vaccine that I got in Cairo because I went to a private clinic and they did not have the Moderna. And I did a lot of reading before I got this Pfizer one because I knew it hadn't yet been approved in Australia. And it seems to have be just as effective as the Moderna bivalent. And both of them are more effective than the original vaccine at preventing Omicron infections. And we've got to remind people that just because they've recently been infected does not mean that they will uh, not be reinfected. That, the evidence from the UK is very, very clear mm -hmm. that the rate of reinfection by Omicron is four to five times higher than it was with Delta. So the message should be, okay, as soon as you're eligible to get a booster, because I think the guidance at the moment is to wait three months after an infection, then get your booster. In the meantime, wear a mask in indoor settings. What other risk mitigation strategies should we be advocating for our patients in the community? Well, at the population level, the one effective mitigation that seems to have been ignored in Australia is improving ventilation. We really now have very solid evidence that improving ventilation will reduce the risk of infection in indoor settings. Now, the only state I'm aware of that did invest in ventilation was Victoria, mainly focusing on schools. And I believe that most schools in Victoria now have air filtration. Now, Victoria also has a, a grant system 
And I might say that my local pub in Elwood in Melbourne took advantage of that. It's a relatively small pub, but they have five filters. So as soon as you walk in the door, the bar is in front of you and there's a HEPA filter staring at you. They also have a rather large music room where they uh, have three filters Mm -hmm. and another filter in a small annex where people eat. They also have a carbon dioxide monitor, which they check once an hour. Now, I'm afraid that's probably unusual. I'm fortunate to live around the corner from it. Now, Belgium leads the world in mandatory ventilation. Mm. All indoor venues have to post on the front door what their current carbon dioxide level is. I think they use 800 as the cutoff point. If it goes above 800, they've got to open the doors and windows and get it down below 800 before they're allowed to let in new customers. Now, we've got nothing like that Mm. approaches that. And given the billions of dollars that we invest in clean water, it's mysterious that we don't seem to want to invest anything in clean air, which, of course, would also benefit people during the flu season, the RSV season, and other respiratory infections like pneumonia in the elderly. So I think that's the big gap in Australia's response And I certainly urge all GPs to make sure that their clinics are well ventilated with either natural ventilation, which is difficult, particularly in the winter or when it's raining, as it seems to do um, all the time now, uh, to keep the doors and windows open. So invest in filters and CO2 monitors are quite cheap. Again, we fail badly. Uh, with regard ventilation and air filtration, we're not doing well with masks and we've got a large number of people who really need to get their boosters. Um, we are not doing well at all by any standards, are we? No, but I should say the world's not doing so well now, oh, okay. except for a few Asian countries. I think that the most important thing to happen in Australia is for our government leaders to come out and say, look, we we still have a problem. COVID is not in the past. We are still vulnerable. The reversal of the requirement to isolate, I think, sends a big danger signal to me. You know, my local bakery has three, four women behind the counter. They're crisscrossing each other all day, interacting with the customers. Now, if one of them gets COVID but's on a casual contract and doesn't have sick leave, she'll go to work. You know, she'll probably have, they're all young, and infect everyone else, and then they have to close the bakery. So it's actually very short-sighted from an economic point of view. I think very large companies can cope, but these small businesses could find themselves having to close because no one's wearing a mask. Um, They don't know who's vaccinated and who's not. And if people are test positive, they can go to work. And this plea for personal responsibility is clearly not working Mm. Um, because you go to a supermarket now and hardly anyone is wearing a mask, Mm -hmm. even though we've been advised to wear a mask by the uh, chief health officers. It's not working because it's not mandated. Uh, I've had a recent experience of that, Michael. Uh, it was a medical meeting. Uh, there must have been 50 of us. 
uh, I was the only one wearing a mask in a room that was not ventilated properly. There you go. And we're all doctors. It's incredible. It really is. And as I said, it's not confined to Australia. Um, my sister and I took a train from Vienna to Salzburg. And when we got on the train in Vienna, everyone was wearing a mask. And then about a half an hour later, we looked around and hardly anyone was wearing a mask except us. And when we got back, I asked our, our um, Austrian friends, how come? And they said, oh, that law only applies to the Vienna metropolitan area. So these people, they were obeying the law while we were in Vienna, and then they were just discarding their masks because they didn't think it was necessary. So it's not just Australians. So you've taken us for an important walk through the current situation. Uh, I would like to end this podcast by asking you to summarise some of your key messages to us. Yes, I think first we need to acknowledge that we are entering a, a new wave. And it is, it's been described as a soup of new subvariants, some of which we don't fully understand yet although the common factor seems to be that they're better at evading the immunity that we get either from a vaccine and or from a, a natural infection. So we need to acknowledge that. There should be very strong messages about the benefits of wearing a mask. I think mandating masks is something no government is going to um, do at the moment in Australia. Thirdly, we need to invest, this is both public and private sectors, in improved air, improved mm -hmm. ventilation. Mm -hmm. I think we need to reintroduce the five-day isolation period mm -hmm. for those who test positive. I think we should make antivirals more widely available. Mm -hmm. I would bring the age cutoff down to 50 and people with any, not two, any pre-existing condition like diabetes. I think with in terms of booster vaccinations, the federal government spent $11 million on a TV campaign. The coverage shifted from 68% to 72%. So it had minimal impact. What governments should be investing in is what we know works, and that is a community engagement. Mm -hmm. Governments need to be working with community leaders, particularly in culturally and linguistically diverse communities. We know for a fact that during the HIV pandemic, community engagement worked. That is what really saved Australia from a massive HIV um, epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that works. Lots of research has shown that if you work with leaders who are respected in their communities. They can be priests, imams, school teachers, whatever. That is an effective way of changing behaviours. And I think if, you know, we're going to increase the booster rate, we don't need more boring TV ads with doctors in white coats. We need that community engagement and also more innovative TV campaigns featuring people who are well-known in the community and loved, particularly by young people. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking of people like Sam Kerr, mm -hmm. the best Australian soccer player we've ever, ever, ever had. Yeah, um, Ash Barty. Ash Barty, absolutely. 
and for the older ones, people like um, the comedian. Um, she's currently got a show on the ABC about improving your health. So that would be my summary. I think for GPs, in terms of getting a fifth dose, it would be a little bit reckless of me to recommend that when Atagi is not, but I can say that I have had a fifth dose. Michael, I really value this uh, interview with you and for sharing your thoughts. Uh, there's a lot for us to think about as we enter this new wave and hope and pray that, in fact, somehow, despite the fact we are not like Singapore, that we will only have a very short spike. Let's hope so. Thank you for your time. Okay. Have Bye-bye. a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.